The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, in chapter 6, reading from verse 10 to verse 13. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. We continue our study of this most important and vital section of Scripture. And in particular, we are examining at the moment this phrase about the wiles of the devil. The apostle, you see, ends this great epistle by emphasizing this matter because he knew full well that there was nothing more important for these Ephesians and all others to hold in their minds then the fact that they were in a fight and a conflict with the wiles of the devil, with all these principalities, powers, the world rulers of this present darkness and spiritual wickedness, even in high places. And so he very solemnly warns them to be prepared for this. And obviously the first thing to do in that preparation is to know something about the wiles of the devil. The devil's most potent inf instrument in many ways is that, of course, of ignorance, of keeping us in ignorance. If people don't even believe in the devil, well, obviously they're already defeated. But even though they may believe in the existence and in the being of the devil, if they're ignorant of his devices if they're not aware of something of the character of the wiles that he employs, as we are told here, they will inevitably be defeated. And there is nothing that is more obvious in the church today, as it has tended to be always, than the way in which the wiles of the devil are being employed and are marring, and in so many ways spoiling the witness and the testimony of God's people. Nothing is more urgent than that we should know something about the wiles of the devil. Now, I've suggested that the best way of classifying this matter is to consider his wiles as they're employed upon the minds of the believer, and then upon the experience, the more experimental aspect of the Christian life, and then thirdly, the practice, the conduct and the behavior of Christians. It's a very large and a, a very involved and obviously subtle subject. But it seems to me that that is the best way in which we can look at it. Now, we've already considered the attacks of the enemy upon the minds of believers. The way in which he does so, producing a kind of arid, barren intellectualism, pride of intellect and understanding, and especially in the matter of heresies. And we've only looked at some of the heresies. Others will come before us as we proceed. Well, now I propose to leave the wiles of the devil as they're manifested in the attacks upon the minds of believers at that. 
and to proceed to this second section where we are looking at the way in which the devil attacks us in the realm of experience. Now, here again is a, a matter which is difficult in so many ways to handle. For one thing, it's very difficult to draw an exact line between these various departments. Where does the mind end and where does experience begin? Obviously, they are very closely related to one another. But uh, we must uh, draw some sort of a line, otherwise we shall be in a state of utter confusion. And it is essential, therefore, that we should draw a line between the attacks more directly and particularly upon the mind and these other attacks which are a little more subjective and in the realm of experience. Obviously, we shall see that very often people go into get into difficulties in the realm of experience because they've got a faulty understanding of the truth. All these things are interrelated. Evil communications corrupt good manners, of course. Uh, as a man thinks, so he is. And clearly, if there is any defect in the intellectual understanding and apprehension of the truth, there will inevitably follow some sort of trouble in the realm of experience. And so one finds in pastoral experience that so many of the experimental troubles which uh, torment people and uh, about which they come to talk to a pastor or a minister, one finds so often that they're the result of either a faulty understanding or some wrong teaching at some particular point or another. If you start off with the wrong idea and your experience follows, well, your experience must clearly be defective, and sooner or later you will know trouble. Very well, then, there is one difficulty of drawing an exact line that needn't concern us too much. There's another difficulty, and that is that it's much more difficult to recognize the wiles of the devil in this matter of experience than it is in the attacks upon the mind. No, he is subtle everywhere. We are dealing with the wiles of the devil in every department. But as we make a comparison between the two, I think it will be fairly obvious that in this realm of experience, it is particularly difficult and particularly subtle for this reason, that it is so subjective. Now, when you're dealing with doctrine, when you're dealing with heresies, you are, after all, dealing with something outside yourself. And you've got your scriptures, and you've got creeds, and the confessions, and books which have been written in exposition of the truth. And uh, the thing, in a sense, is outside you, and it is objective. But, of course, here, when you're in the realm of experience, you are dealing with something which is almost entirely subjective. It's concerned about our feelings, our emotions, our states, our moods, and obviously, therefore, it is going to be exceedingly difficult. How can I give it in terms of a comparison? It's something like this. It, it should be easier, and it is generally easier for us to deal with some purely theoretical academic problem than it is with the problem of our own health, for instance. Because you are the sufferer, because you've got some aches or pains or some difficulty in your constitution, 
It's more difficult for you than somebody looking on to be exactly aware of what is happening. You're an interested party. You are experiencing the sensations. That's much more difficult, therefore, than to deal with something that is entirely outside yourself. Well, now then, I'm saying this to show that uh, the attacks and the wiles of the devil with respect to our experiences are extremely difficult to detect. You see, we all tend to be on the defensive. We all tend to put ourselves right always. To that extent, the devil has an opportunity. We are not on guard as we are with objective truth. It concerns us ourselves, so we are protecting ourselves and guarding ourselves, and thereby it's much more difficult for us to recognize what is happening to us. Isn't that an experience we all know? Whenever there's any trouble or quarrel or dispute, it's always somebody else, isn't it? We are never in the wrong. We are always right. It's always that other person. Well, now, that's because the thing is within ourselves and the devil in his wiles and in his subtlety blinds us. Self-interest and all these other matters come in so that we can't give and exercise such a good and objective judgment as we can with regard to matters that are outside us. Very well. That leads me to say that uh, here in this department, as with regard to the mind and as with regard to practice, the great characteristic of the devil's activity is always to create confusion. He gets us into a state of confusion and of muddle. And the other great characteristic is that he always tends to drive us from one extreme right over to the other. That is, of course, the great characteristic of his activity and therefore the characteristic of the life and the history of the church. The swinging over from one extreme right to the other. In correcting one thing, we so overcorrect it that we've fallen into the exact opposite error, which is quite as bad as the first one that we were correcting. And so in the realm of experience, he drives us violently from one end to the other. And thereby... He brings us into this state of utter confusion. Well, now then, let's try and look at this together. We are dealing, if you like, to put it very simply and practically, with the ups and downs of Christian experience. With the fact that there are so many Christian people who are not happy. Indeed, some are quite miserable. And who are always in some kind of perplexity and unhappiness, carrying a burden, worrying with a problem, in the realm of experience. Now all this is the result of the wiles of the devil. There's no other adequate explanation of it. Here is this great and glorious salvation. Why are we not all rejoicing in it, praising God with the whole of our being? There's only one answer. It's the wiles of the devil. Somewhere or another, in the realm of experience, he's caused confusion. And we don't know where we are. And the result is that we ourselves are in trouble and our testimony is very greatly marred. So, let's have a look at this together. Let's try and deal with it in general this morning. Now, take a very big and obvious point like this. Take the whole question of the place of experience in general in the Christian life. Now, let's see the wiles of the devil, even in as broad and as wide a field as that. And this is what you find. There are two main difficulties and problems which arise with respect to that. 
The first is that there are some people who put the entire emphasis upon experience. Nothing matters to these people but the experimental, the experiential aspect. They're not interested in truth. They're not interested in definitions. They say, you know, nothing matters except that a man shall say this, whereas I was once blind, now I see. Now they say, that's the only thing that matters. And they're not interested in anything else. Unless a man can testify to a great change in his life. They feel that there's nothing there at all. It's the only test that they apply. They're always talking about it. It's the one theme always. Telling us what happened to them. Telling us that the same thing can happen to us and should happen to us and so on. Now then, there is, there is the type of person, I say, that is only interested in experience. And if they can show that people have had some experience which makes them better than they were before, if they no longer do certain things that they once did, and if they testify to the fact that they're happy whereas they were once miserable, they say, we want no more. They're not concerned to examine as to what has produced the change. They're not interested in the fact that there are many agencies that can do that. They're, they're not concerned about that. This experience, the experimental thing, is the one thing that matters. Nothing else counts at all. Now, here, you see, is one of the extremes. Now, this takes a variety of forms. It isn't always in the same form. There is the form, for instance, that we were looking at as I read to you that portion out of the book of Job. Eliphaz, the Temanite, is a great illustration of the type of men who, to whom experiences are the one thing that matter. Listen to him speaking. Now he says, you see, here is poor Job, you remember, in his terrible trouble, with that awful condition of his skin. In an agony, his children have been killed, everything has gone wrong, his animals have been destroyed by the hurricane. The poor man is in terrible and wretched trouble, and here comes one of his friends called Eliphaz. And this is how he speaks. A thing was secretly brought to me, and mine ear received a little thereof. In thoughts from the visions of the night, when deep sleep falleth on men, fear came upon me and trembling, which made all my bones to shake. Then a spirit passed before my face, the hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern the form thereof. An image was before mine eyes. There was silence, and I heard a voice saying. In other words, what he was saying to Job was something like this. Listen to me, he said. I know what I'm talking about. I'm a man who's had an experience. I've seen a vision. Now, there is that type of person. Always talking about strange, remarkable experiences. Vision, ecstasies, things that have happened to them. This is the authority. And on this, everything is based. They're always saying, listen to me. This is what's happened to me. I'm speaking, therefore, with this unusual authority. And, of course, the, the devil encourages them also not only to talk about it constantly, but to seek further experiences along the same line. There, there is the type of person whom the devil attacks along that line. He knows they're interested. It may be their natural temperament. It may be that they've become interested in psychic phenomena at one time. There may be something in their background, some confusion in their reading and in their teaching. And here they are, they're interested in the, and the devil presses them and encourages them. And they're always seeking 
these unusual and exceptional experiences. Now, we've got to be clear about this. I shall be saying in a moment that experience is absolutely essential. What I'm talking about now is the people who live on them and who base everything upon them and who are interested in nothing else and who are always seeking them. Some of them live on the memory. I've known many such Christian people. To me, it's been a very sad and a very pathetic thing always. I've known a type of person, there are not many of them left now, but at one time I used to meet quite a number of them. Whenever I met them, or whenever I was preaching in their district and they came to me at the end of the service, I knew that before a second had passed almost, they'd be telling me of the things that had happened to them in the Welsh Revival of 1904 and 5. Always. They were living on them. Always talking about them. Always looking backwards. That was the thing, the one thing, as if nothing had happened to them since then. They never told me of the things that had happened to them subsequent to 1905. No, no, it was these amazing things that happened in the time of revival. Well, they are amazing things, and they're things about which we should speak. But we shouldn't live on them. I knew a man, I knew a minister, whose whole ministry was ruined by this. During that same revival, this man had indeed had very remarkable and astonishing experiences from God. There was no question about it. He'd been used in a very remarkable manner. But then, you see, the revival ended, as all revivals do end. And the poor man, instead of understanding that and realizing it, and proceeding with his work of expounding the scriptures and preaching the gospel into the power of the Spirit, were still expecting the unusual experiences to come and to continue, and they didn't come. You see, during this revival, the man never had to prepare anything. Words were given to him. There was great freedom and power. But when the revival had gone, that stopped. But he still didn't prepare. He was still expecting it, and it didn't happen. And so he became depressed and spent about 30 years of his life in a kind of barrenness, in a kind of unhappiness, if he talked about these experiences, he was a transformed man. His eyes flashed and he spoke with animation. But normally, he was hypochondriacal, unhappy, miserable, and utterly ineffective in his ministry. Well, now, these are but illustrations of the kind of things I'm talking about. They're the devil, I say, has ruined many a Christian life through encouraging people to be living on experiences and seeking them, looking for them, always talking about them, looking back upon them, relying upon them. And so he paralyzes their value as living Christian witnesses. Now there's one extreme. Well, of course, there are many undoubtedly who would at once recognize that particular fallacy. And they recognize it so clearly that the devil, in his subtlety, drives them right over to the opposite extreme. What is this? Ah, here we are looking at people who are not interested in experience at all. To them, this experience and the emphasis upon experience is something that they almost despise. They say these people are always talking about their experiences, about what's happened to them, about the change in their lives. What do they know about the truth? And then they begin to expatiate about the truth. Nothing matters here except the truth only. Well, now you see where the devil comes in. 
The truth is essential. It's absolutely vital. Yes, but if you say that only truth is essential, you're as wrong as the people who say that nothing but experience is essential. But here the devil comes in on this big question of the whole place of experience in the Christian life and causes unutterable confusion. The trouble with the people in the second group is that though they talk so much about the truth, they've very often never felt its power. They have a form of godliness, says the apostle, but deny the power thereof. They've never felt the power of the truth. They've never been mastered by it. It's been purely intellectual. They've looked on. They've, with their minds and understanding, looked at this thing. The truth that they talk so much about has never changed their lives. It's never made a vital difference to them. Well, now you see, this is terrible. This is as wrong as the other. Experience only, says one. Don't bother about experience at all, says the other. The thing is, have you got this insight, this understanding, this grasp of the truth? And they look at it objectively and purely objectively. And they've never experienced anything at all. Now, my dear friends, as I hold it before you like this, the thing is so obvious, isn't it? But is it equally obvious in practice? What do we really know about this truth in experience? Are you what you are this morning because of your belief of this truth? Has this truth mastered you? Has it gripped you? Does this truth really control you? Let's make no mistake about this. The truth of God is something that is to be experienced. This is not a philosophical system. This is not a mere ethical teaching. The whole object and end of religion is to bring us to a knowledge of God. And God isn't a, a philosophic X. God isn't an abstraction. God is not a postulate in my philosophy. God is. God is a person. And he's to be known. Do you notice how John puts it there? There he is, the last of the apostles. And writing a letter as an old man. He's bidding his farewell to those people to whom he was writing. And did you remember how he put it? He says, look here, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled. He said, this isn't philosophy, this isn't mysticism. This is concrete. A living person. God in the flesh. We've touched him. Our hands have handled of the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you. Why? Why does he declare it unto them? Is it because it's a, a glorious grand system of truth superior to everything else? Is it because it's a, such an amazing body of theology that it's thrilling to contemplate? No, no. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that you also may have fellowship with us. Well, what is this fellowship with us? Truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship. This is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. It doesn't mean to know about him. 
The devils know about him, but they tremble. It isn't that. It's the knowledge of experience. It is the knowledge of fellowship. It is the knowledge of an intimacy. Now the devil comes in, you see, and causes unutterable confusion at this most central point of all. The essence of the Christian position is experience, experience of God. It is not a mere intellectual acceptance or apprehension of truth that can be of the devil if he doesn't bring me to the knowledge of the Father and of his Son. It is of no value to me. But let's remember on the other side that it's equally important that my experience is an experience of the Father and of his Son. There are cults that can change your life. There are cults that can deliver you from things that get you down. There are cults that can give you happiness. Psychotherapy can do it and many others. Even an operation on your brain and many other things. No, no, we must have a test. If the experience is not an experience of the living God through his Son and who has come to live and to die and rise again in order to give it, if it isn't through the Holy Spirit, it is not a true experience. But you see, thus the devil comes and in his wiliness he deludes. A man says, I've got an experience, my life has changed, something marvelous has happened to me. All right, my dear friend, it's a good thing that you're a better man than you were. But what I ask is, why are you a better man? We must test the experience on both sides. Without experience there is nothing. There is no value in having a head full of knowledge if it hasn't mastered you, if it hasn't given you a knowledge of God, if you don't know him. The end and object of all knowledge is to bring us to that knowledge of the living God and of his Son, Jesus Christ. Do we know the power of the truth? Have we a living experience of God and of his Son? Is God real to us? Now, you see, this is where the devil comes in in his wiles, on one side and on the other. Let's be clear about it then. Experience is essential, it's vital. The Christian is a new man. He's unlike everybody else. But he is that, as the result only of the grace of God, in and through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, if you have an experience and still remain without a belief in God, it's not a true one. If you still maintain an experience and don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, in his full deity, and in all his glory, and in his atoning work, it isn't a true experience. Experience of the Father and of his Son in the fellowship of the blessed Holy Spirit. Well, I must leave it at that so that I can proceed to the second consideration this morning. There, you see, was the big question of experience as such. And there can be confusion even about that at the very beginning. Let's go on and analyze that a little by talking about the place of feelings. Now, feelings is a subsection, isn't it, of experience. It isn't the same thing. When I talk about experience, I mean something bigger than feeling. It includes this whole aspect of fellowship and of communion. But feelings is a particular aspect of experience. 
Now here again the devil causes endless confusion. And once more in the same way, overdoing it or dismissing it and despising it. There are some people who live on their feelings. They overdo this element of feelings altogether. Nothing interests them but feeling. That's their one criterion of the meeting. Did you feel anything? And if they haven't felt, if they haven't wept, nothing's happened. It's of no value at all. Of course, this matter of feeling can take many forms. It isn't always weeping. It is sometimes excitement, almost hysteria. If they haven't been lifted up and right out of themselves and almost lost themselves, they feel that nothing's happened. That's their one test of the operation of the Spirit. You are familiar with some of these excesses. Some people feel that they've got nothing unless they've been carried away. And their only test is this one test of feeling. Here again is a very difficult matter to, say, to, to classify, but I'm talking about the people who live on emotionalism or on sentimentalism. And of course, sometimes this is worked up quite deliberately. If people believe that nothing matters except this kind of riot or excitement of the emotions, well, of course, they'll do everything they can to encourage that, and it's deliberately worked up quite often. There are services in which people clap their hands and they shout and they sing and they repeat and they have certain types of choruses, and the whole thing is done deliberately to work up an excitement, and the more excited they get and the more emotional they become, the more wonderful they think the blessing of the Spirit has been. You're familiar You've heard with, of that kind of thing. Emotionalism. And then another aspect of it is a sentimentalism. I'll deal with them in a moment with the difference between the two things. Well, there is this type of person whose only interest is in this matter of feeling. God knows many of us, perhaps from experience, know something about this. I certainly remember a stage in my own experience when at a communion service I used to see certain older people weeping as they took the communion. And I felt that that was the one thing that mattered in the communion service and because I couldn't weep I was in great trouble and would do anything I could to make myself weep feeling that until I'd wept in taking the communion I'd never taken it truly. I came later, of course, to analyze what it was that made many of these good people weep. And I came to the conclusion that with large numbers of them, it was something artificially produced. They deliberately did this. They made themselves do it. And some people can do this. You see, that was the only test. And there are people who are in that position, and nothing matters except this question of feeling. But then, you see, the devil comes and makes this thing appear to us to be ridiculous, and we go right over to the other extreme. And we take up the position in which we say that this kind of manifestation of feeling is not only a weakness, but may even indeed be ridiculous. There are people who are so afraid of emotionalism that they've driven emotion right out of their lives altogether. Their attitude is that nothing matters but that a man believes. It is this adherence to the truth that counts. They've never felt. They don't want to feel. Indeed, some of them go so far as to say that you needn't bother about your feelings. There was a man called Sandyman who began to teach, you know, about 1780 or thereabouts and got quite a following. And that was Sandyman's teaching. He said feelings don't matter at all. He said there are so many Christian people who are miserable and unhappy. And he said there's only one reason for it. 
They're looking inwards to some feeling or to some experience. And he says it doesn't matter. Doesn't Paul teach in Romans 10 something like this? What saith the scripture? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Then verse 9. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So he began to teach this. He said, it doesn't matter whether you've ever felt anything or not. Do you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus? If you do, all is well. That was the teaching of Sandiman. It became known as Sandimanianism. And I have a feeling that it is very rife at the present time. The type of people who say, now look here, don't, don't bother about your feelings. Do you believe? All right. There it, all is well. And the result is that there are many Christian people who have never felt the power of the truth at all. Take it by faith, they've been told. And they've done so as they think. They've assented to a proposition. All right. They've never felt anything. They've never known sorrow for sin. They have never known what it is to grieve over their inward corruptions. They have never known what it is to be melted by the sight of the glory of the Lord and of his wonderful truth. No, no. They've been told, don't worry about your feeling. That's all right. You believe all is well. They've literally never been moved by this truth. Never. They don't even know what it is to rejoice in it. They just hold it. Now they've become Christians, just go on like that. Then they put a certain amount of discipline into their lives and that's all and there's no more. You see where the wiles of the devil come in. Let's be clear about this. Here again there are certain fundamental postulates. The whole man is to be involved in the Christian faith. It is the glory of the faith. The whole man. Mind and heart and will. They're all to be engaged. And if they're not all engaged, there's something seriously wrong. The truth is not only to be looked at intellectually and to be appreciated intellectually. No, no. If a man really sees this, he must feel something. The heart must be engaged and involved. And likewise, it must lead to practice. But not only that, you see. The nature of this truth is such. The glory of the truth is such. That if a man really sees it and knows something about it, he's bound to feel it. Listen to John again. These things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. Not only experience, but an experience of joy. That your joy may be full. Rejoice in the Lord always, says the Apostle Paul. And again I say unto you, rejoice. It is inconceivable that a man really sees the truth of this gospel and feels nothing. It's impossible. It can't happen. This amazing message that tells us that God before time planned this glorious scheme of salvation, that the Son came in the fullness of the times, humbled himself, divested himself of his glory. Look at the babe in Bethlehem. Oh, yes, you say, I believe in the incarnation. But do you say it like that? 
Look at his life during the years. Listen to his incomparable teaching. Look at him staggering up Golgotha. Look at him upon the cross. Ah, yes, he said, I believe in the cross. I believe that Christ died for me in my sins. I believe in the substitutionary doctrine of the atonement. My dear friend, if you can say it like that, you've never seen it. You know nothing about it. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. How can you really believe this and feel nothing? The thing is a contradiction in terms. But you know, furthermore, it is a part of this message to say this, that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which he hath given unto us. And what he means by the love of God there is not God's love to us, it's our love to God. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts, says Romans 5, by the Holy Ghost which he has given to us. But read your Bible, read your Old Testament, and don't you find a grand emotion here? Read your Psalms. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Yea, even though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. The emotion, the profound feeling. Read some of those magnificent passages of Isaiah, Isaiah 40, Isaiah 60 to 65. These grand, moving, eloquent passages. The man is disturbed to the depth of his being. Why? By what? By the glory and the grandeur of the truth. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God, and so on. And when you come to the New Testament, of course, it's still more obvious. Take a passage like the 8th chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans with its moving periods, its mighty eloquence. The man's moved to the very depth of his being. We have led a sheep to the slaughter every day, he says. Nevertheless, he goes on to add, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Apostle Paul, this giant intellect, this mighty intellectual. Here he is, he's carried away, and he's so carried away that he breaks the rules of grammar, his style, to the little pedants who are trying to, to translate him today, becomes guilty of its inconsinities, as they call them, and the anachaluther and so on. What's the matter? Well, the man is simply moved by this truth. And the result is that your New Testament is full of this grand emotion. And indeed, we are told about the Apostle Paul that he wept. His tears are mentioned here as he was talking to people about these things. But it isn't confined to the Bible. Look at our hymn books. What was it that enabled these men to write their hymns? What led them to do so? Well, there's only one answer. They were moved by the truth. They felt the truth. They were disturbed by it. And, of course, you get it endlessly in the experiences of the saints of God uh, throughout the, the centuries. Well, now then, the question that somebody may want to ask me at the moment is this. 
I recognize what you're saying, but on the other hand, I'm afraid of that emotionalism. That's the difficulty, isn't it, with all these things. That's my problem, says a man, with regard to experience and with regard to feelings. I see these excesses and I don't want that. And then I recognize, on the other hand, that my coldness, my lifelessness must be wrong. How can a man tell the difference between these things? What is the difference between emotionalism, sentimentalism, and true emotion? Nobody wants to defend emotionalism. Nobody, I hope, wants to defend sentimentalism. Let me show you the difference between them. I'll only give you my headings. Emotionalism, what are its characteristics? Well, here they are. It's generally worked up. In some shape or form, it is artificially produced. The second characteristic of emotionalism is that it always lacks the element of understanding. It's always a direct assault upon the emotions. It bypasses understanding, it bypasses truth. They don't care how they get the feeling as long as they get it. And hand clapping, tambourines, anything, as long as they'll work you up and you lose yourself. Swaying of the body and so on. It's always produced by bypassing the, the understanding. The third characteristic of emotionalism is always the element of excitement, the element of rowdiness, the element of excess, invariable. Emotionalism is always characterized by this element of riot, excess. And another most important thing about emotionalism is this. If you've ever experienced it, you'll find that it'll leave you exhausted. It tires you, it takes out of you. It's the same as drink, which seems to be filling men with energy, but which really is sapping his energy. And it leaves him with a kind of horrible hangover, a tiredness, a weariness, and exhaustion. Emotionalism always does that. And finally, it never affects the life and the living. Obviously it can't, because it's not based on truth. So that men may have these wonderful experiences, these riots of the emotions, but look at their lives and you'll find something very different. That's emotionalism. What about sentimentalism? Now then, this is a little more subtle, isn't it? Sentimentalists are always ready to denounce emotionalists. But what is sentimentalism? Sentimentalism, I would suggest to you, is nothing but polite emotionalism. That's the only difference. It's the difference between emotionalism in rags and emotionalism in evening dress. Sentimentalism is very polite. Let me give you a hurried illustration. If you want to know the difference between sentimentalism and true emotion, I suggest that you read the works on the one hand of J.M. Barry and on the other hand Shakespeare. Barry was the arch-sentimentalist. Shakespeare leads to emotion. What are the characteristics of sentimentalism? Well, sentimentalism is this. It isn't a riot of the emotions. No, it's, it's too polite for that. It just tickles the emotion. A light touch, a tickling. It doesn't really move. No, it just tickles. What is the cause of this? Well, emotionalism, sentimentalism, is generally produced in this way. It depends upon the presentation of the truth rather than upon the truth itself. In other words, if a man's preaching and he tells an affecting story, you feel something. It wasn't the truth that made you feel it, it was the man's story. 
It was the illustration. Now that's typical of sentimentalism. It's never gripped by truth, but it's very much interested in the form in which the truth is conveyed, in the mechanism, in the presentation. Hymn tunes, tunes in particular, can lead to sentimentalism. People feel they're moved, but it's nothing but sentimentalism. It was only the tune. It was perhaps the beauty of the very words of the hymn. It wasn't the truth conveyed. There's always this false element about it. The next uh, manifestation or characteristic is its superficiality, of course. It's superficial. It is genteel. It is polite. It really is not moved at all. The man who's a sentimentalist is always in perfect control, but he allows this to happen on the just on the surface of his life, and no more. And the result is that the sentimentalist is always rather pleased with himself. He's glad to find that he can still feel, and it gives him a sense of satisfaction. And he mistakes this superficial, genteel feeling which he does get for the real and the genuine thing. So that lastly I would say this about it that it never has a real effect upon the life. It may well lead the man to do something that will salve his conscience or make him feel a little bit happier. He's had this superficial feeling and he does something in the light of that. But he hasn't been gripped by truth. He doesn't know what it is to be mastered by the glory of the Lord. No, no. He's salving his conscience. He's putting himself right with himself. In this sentimental mood, he's done a good deed. He's, been, he's, he's done a kind act. And probably as he's doing so, he's evading the truth itself. He's covering over something. But he feels he's felt. He's been moved. But in this polite, superficial, controlled manner, that sentimentalism, what is emotion itself, by contrast with both emotionalism and sentimentalism, oh, here are its characteristics. It's never artificial. It's never produced. Man can't create this. It's too deep for that. It is always a result of an understanding of the truth itself. True emotion always results from a recognition of the truth. And the result is that it's characterized by depth. It's deep, it's profound. There's an element of nobility in it. There's an element of wonder and of amazement. There's never that in emotionalism. It's all excitement, frothy, shouting on the surface. And it's, it doesn't have this politeness of the mere sentimentalist. There's something deep here. To me, the meanest flower that blows can give thoughts that do often lie too deep for tears. But the emotion is profound. It's noble. There's an element of wonder, surprise, amazement. The whole person is gripped and is moved in the manner that I've illustrated out of the scriptures. But here is another very valuable test. True emotion is always energizing. It's like a battery put on you. It gives you power. It moves you with an energy divine. It's not the excess, the riot of emotionalism. It's not this mere playing with emotion that characterizes sentimentalism. But it's the energy of the Holy Ghost. It's the power of the Spirit. It's the whole man galvanized by the life of God. And the result is 
that it always leads to action. It always leads to a difference. Let me put it like this to you. If you think you felt something in a service now and again, and you want to know whether it's the true thing or not, the time to test it is not while you're still in the building. It's tomorrow. It's the day after. You can get emotionalism in a meeting and sentimentalism. Ah, but if it's a true emotion as the result of seeing something of the truth or a glimpse of God or of the Lord himself and some recognition of the glory of it all, it'll go on. It'll move you. It'll master you. It'll guide you. It'll direct you. It'll be with you. It'll have energized you. And it will have been productive. You see, it is what the Apostle calls in writing to the Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit. And it's a glorious fruit. It is an abiding fruit. Well, we leave it at that for this morning. There are just two of these preliminary matters in the realm of experience. Experience as such. And feelings. Oh, that we may have wisdom to see these things. That we may recognize the wiles of the devil who can so manipulate these things as to spoil our Christian life subjectively and also in our witness and testimony before others. Thank God that as we look at it, we are reminded that we can be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, that we can take unto us the whole armor of God. Amen.